0: to the show. Thank you for being here as always. Coming to you live from a gray, rainy day in Antigua. Actually has been a pretty not super rainy, rainy season here, Um, which is really nice. Although I can't say I dislike the rain. It's really cozy and definitely promotes uh, relaxation. I'm I've definitely been feeling a bit run down and burnt out recently, which I think, at least as far as those I've spoken to, I think this may be at least a semi-universal experience at the moment. Um, not necessarily stressed or anxious. I feel really excited about what's going on in my life and this podcast and Horapoor, and i um, really looking forward to the next set of transitions and the Lunar Circle has been really fun. It's just a lot of stuff, um, a lot of stuff that I'm putting my energy into. So when I'm not doing stuff, um, I've basically just been sitting in bed working, which feels amazing. And uh, I feel like every time I do this, I remember how long I spent in my life not giving myself permission to actually relax or feeling like I was a shittier person somehow from working from the bed versus like working at a desk. Um, and that's total bullshit. And I'm really glad to be done with that phase of my life. Uh, and I, I hope to encourage all of you to work from your bed as well. Um, especially if it makes you feel better and makes you feel a little less overwhelmed. It certainly does for me. It feels fucking indulgent. And indulgence is not something we should be ashamed about. Um, Today's episode is with Rehan Ansari. And I was really grateful to be able to talk to him and to have him on the podcast. Um, We crossed paths a while ago. It was right at the beginning of COVID. And uh, Chris and I went to this ranch where all of these people live, I forget the name of it, but, um, all those people that created that biosphere thing, um, they all live there. Um, they're much, much older now, but they've all known each other for decades. And it was like the beginning of COVID when everyone was like just getting stuck wherever they were. Um, and that was, I believe, Rayhan's situation. He was living lives in New York, um, and was just in Santa Fe at this ranch for like a moment, but then COVID happened and he just ended up staying and it was a weird time. Um and we met in that context and I was talking about my podcast a bit, and he <laughs> sort of Expressed expressed um, when I sort of shared, and you'll hear more about this in our conversation, but I kind of shared that my podcast, I always have a really hard time actually talking about what my podcast is about. I feel like I tell people the name and they automatically assume it's like a woke podcast, which is really unfortunate uh, because it's like basically an anti-woke podcast. Uh, but I feel like just because it has millennial in the title, people judge it a certain way, which if you've been listening for a while, you know, is actually part of the point for me because... I felt really ashamed about being a young person and being a millennial. And instead of trying to run away from that or pretend like I wasn't a young person or a millennial, I just decided to uh, reclaim that shit. So it makes me happy when people don't judge the book by its cover and are intrigued and recognize that this is not in fact a woke podcast, but even still past the name, it is sometimes difficult for me to try to explain what the podcast is about. like I still, after three years, have not really gotten down my elevator speech for the podcast. If someone wants to write me an elevator speech for the podcast, that would be awesome. I'd greatly appreciate it. Um, But one of the things I do say is that I like to have really unconventional taboo conversations that don't occur that much in the public realm, but that I think need to occur more often And Rehan is from Pakistan, and he started speaking about the war on terror and terrorism in general. And this is not a topic I've ever uh, discussed on the podcast at all. I'm incredibly ignorant about it, actually. I mean, I know the war was ridiculous, and it was started for ridiculous reasons. And we stayed there for way too long, and the way we exited was ridiculous. But um, honestly, aside from that, I don't know that much about it. So he was speaking about it in really intelligent ways. And um, I also just like that he wasn't, I mean, he's a journalist, but like he's not, you know, necessarily an expert in the field or someone that's spent, you know, countless hours reading or experiencing things in sort of like a more intellectual, academic way. Like he's a real person who has real life experiences and opinions, um, with all of this being from Pakistan, having lived in America for a long time. So I just really appreciated his real world perspective. And I feel like because he's just a guy, <laughs> um, he was able to kind of speak more candidly and honestly and yeah, just vulnerably about this issue, which is insanely complicated. And, you know, of course, like so many things, this, this issue, climate change, etc. cetera. I think we often tend to like over intellectualize and over rationalize and, you know, spend a lot of time talking about the facts and the figures and what's gone on and what hasn't gone on. And, you know, while that's important at times, I think it can often be an avoidance mechanism for just experiencing the sheer grief and overwhelm of the fucked up situation to begin with. And I feel like that comes through a lot in the conversation that I had with Rehan. um, you know, as much as we both want to talk about it and intellectualize it and, um, think about it, it's ultimately such a clusterfuck. And so many of the problems in our world right now are clusterfucks. And, uh, sometimes we just need to live in the clusterfuck or at least just process that because there are no easy or simple solutions um I feel like that's actually a lot of what I was thinking about in my last episode with Sapora Berman about the climate crisis and it's just a lot. It's like, you know, we so want to come up with the right answer and the right solution and the thing that will fix it and there is no such thing. Everything is so sort of holistically connected and nuanced and complicated and uh yeah, for people I think like me who love efficiencies That can just be really hard. Um, I actually, I feel like this came up for me a lot when I several years ago um, decided that what I really wanted to do with my life was like buy a bunch of land and start some sort of community. And I was operating from such an interesting perspective about it at first, where I was like, "I'm gonna come up with the system," like "I'm gonna come up with the thing," and "I'm gonna write a book about it," or "I'm gonna create a manual." And then I'm going to like sell it and everyone else can base their own little community thing around this amazing model that I'm going to figure out all the answers and the systems for. Um, And thankfully, I was sort of open to the universe's feedback uh, and other people's like regular people's feedback not just the uh, existential universe, but I was just sort of open to like being proven wrong in that sense. And the messages I kept receiving were like, no, um, this isn't about creating a system or one process or one way. There are hundreds of different ways and they can all be valid and they can all make a difference. And maybe actually the sort of like multiplicitousness of all of those things are what will eventually fix things or help to fix things, not just one way of doing something. So all that said, um, don't try to come up with easy solutions. <laughs> What's that quote? There's like for every complicated problem, there's an answer that's in like incredibly simple and easy and wrong. Um, and I think that's true. And, uh, I really do feel like the benefit of this podcast or whatever benefit I can give, to anyone or to anything is to ask more questions than to try to give answers. So hopefully today you have, um, the opportunity to think about questions you maybe haven't before and think about things in new ways. Um, what else is going on? Uh, if you are a HorrorPore listener or you are interested in listening to Horopore, this is the podcast that I co-host with my BFF, Aaron. And we have um, extremely <laughs> taboo, unconventional conversations around sexuality and all sorts of uh, thematic tendrils extending out from sexuality. And we have finally kind of upgraded our Patreon And we are going to be offering quarterly Zoom calls for listeners and access to my uh, Millennials Guide Discord server. Uh, We just posted a little update on um, what we're doing in that uh, space. So I recommend searching for Whore Rapport, R-A-P-P-O-R-T, and taking a listen to that uh, little update episode that we did about the exciting things in our Patreon community, supporting us at patreon.com slash Whore Rapport. We get so, so many questions uh, both within that podcast, but also you guys asking me through this podcast as well about how you can meet like-minded people, especially um, those who may be semi-like-minded or aligned with you in regard to sexuality and relationships. And I know it's not that easy to meet people in the regular standard ways. So uh, the quarterly Zoom chats and the Discord server are great places to do that. So recommend checking that out. And to talk to you a bit more about our Millennials Guide Patreon, I am going to play you a message that my dear friend Marin, who is the co-host of the absolutely... Insanely brilliant project, Death in the Garden. She's been on the podcast before, and I'm looking forward to having her and her partner, Jake, uh, back on the show to specifically talk about Death in the Garden. It's going to be a film, it's kind of like a multimedia project, and uh, currently they are releasing podcast episodes, which are Amazing and fascinating and very much in the same vein as a millennials guide, but more sort of niche hyper-focused on the climate and the environment and the complexities of how we can fucking solve that problem, if that's possible. Um so I'm going to play you a little message from Marin talking about her experience in our Patreon community. If that's something that you would like to join, Patreon.com/slash AnyaKats A N Y A K A A T S is where to do that. And then I am going to play you in to today's conversation with Rehan with a cover of Masters of War with uh, by View Farkatore and Julia Easterlin. good. I like it. Um, thank you for being here. Thank you for listening. Thank you for supporting the podcast. Uh, we hope to see more of you in our Patreon community. We offer tons and tons of perks. And if you're not interested in doing that, but would still like to support the podcast, you can go to iTunes, leave some stars and a review, uh, share about the podcast on social media, send an episode to your friend. Um, yeah, love how this community has grown in size and in quality, and you guys are amazing. And I'm so fucking grateful to have you all in my life and to share these ideas and these experiences and this journey with all of you. So, sending you much love. Catch you on the other side.
1: Hello, everyone. My name is Marin, and I would highly, highly, highly recommend joining Anya's Patreon community. I was thinking about it and I think my life truly wouldn't be what it is today if not for this community and the perks that the her Patreon has offered to me. Um, the amount of friendships and community that I have gained over the past year and a half, has been completely life-changing and the fact that I know that I have so many people I can turn to for advice and for words of encouragement and they're all intelligent and incredible and passionate and like-minded like it's truly priceless and that's just the community there's also the courses that are offered and the book club and it's really just great to be part of a affirming community of people who are all just so passionate about learning and becoming better people. And I would highly, highly, highly recommend joining the Patreon community. We'd like to see you there.
0: live with Rehan, I am very excited to have this conversation. Um, We met sort of serendipitously at the beginning of COVID, which was a crazy time um, in Santa Fe. And yeah, I think you briefly asked me what my podcast was about. And I said it was having unconventional taboo conversations and I remember there was like a pause for a few minutes while other people spoke. And then you said, you know what, (laughs) this is a conversation (laughs) that I never hear that I would like to hear. Um, and you spoke a bit about terrorism and the war on terror. And, um, as I mentioned before we started recording, it was, I can't necessarily say that the, you know, the little bit you said was, uh, surprising or shocking, but I'd certainly never heard anyone say it explicitly. (laughs) Um, And uh, I really wanted to give you the opportunity to talk about this and also share this perspective with my audience. Um, I assume if I haven't heard these sorts of perspectives, many other people haven't either. So um, why don't you uh, start by just briefly introducing yourself? Uh, Where are you from? (laughs) What do you do? Um, And yeah, we can kind of jump into it from there.
2: Yes i'm Rihan Ansari, and i 've been a journalist for uh, at least two decades um, I'm, and then I left it, and now i 'm back on a project with pbs i 'm back into, back in journalism um, but in terms of journalism and say the War on terror, a, a couple of things that are interesting is that I used to be in New York a civil liberties journalist. Mm. Right after 9/11, because I felt very soon that, that 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 that's going to be a focus of the war. Um, Washington will, uh, Washington and warmongers will figure out a way to curtail civil liberties. Yeah. So I got drawn into that. So it was an activist journalism. Mm.
3: Um,
2: uh, so so that's something that I've done. I remember a thing that I did then was I began to look at uh, the Urdu Press in New York, uh, which is, which is, which are very tiny publications in the tri-state area. So, mm. and, and, and it's an immigrant press. But what started to happen was it was at those um, mom and pop uh, businesses or, or publications that people would be calling and talking about raids taking place. Hmm. And this is November, December 2001. It wasn't even in the Times, the New York Times. Hmm. So that's when my journalist instinct woke up that something big is happening. Um, And I began to then, um, for Independent Press Association, I would translate those stories, but I would reorganize those as well and give them context. Uh, So I suppose I'm saying that that's how I got into civil liberties journalism, realizing that law enforcement is going to go nuts. Uh, They're just going to arrest people, frankly randomly, brown people, Muslims, Arabs, Pakistanis, not knowing anything anything about the communities. I have cousins living in those communities and I know there would be no radicalization. So, so to me it was a a simple issue of a civil liberties crisis. Right. So that's a journalism I did. Another journalism I've done in the last 20 years was, uh, and it was investigative journalism around, uh, and my theme was the garrison state and the independent press association sent me to india and pakistan and the idea was that islamabad and new delhi and other places are, are doing copycat uh, patriot acts mm.
3: um
2: they, they they think it's a very good idea yeah <laughs> so one should report on that mm. um yeah and um so, yes, yeah, so that's what I did. And, and uh, I suppose I should say that it was always difficult to pitch these stories back to New York editors.
3: Hmm.
2: Sure, I was getting these opportunities. But I remember in 2003 or four, I was pitching stories about Pakistan Army acting on the behest of Washington in the tribal areas. And uh, the tribal areas would have names like North Waziristan. And people would be going, What are you talking about? Sounds like um, sounds like something out of Dune or you know right. just sounded sci-fi. It yeah. was kind of sci-fi. Yeah. But it it just was also um difficult emotion for me because I just felt like this is gonna get bigger, but I kind of have to wait for um for people to understand the crisis editors to understand how big this crisis is going to be Hmm. so i guess i'm talking about an emotion where i was like i think there's a time lag between myself and you know new york journalists or editors right so
0: you're from pakistan originally i'm from pakistan yeah when did you come to the u.s
2: i'm from pakistan i grew up in karachi Mm. I came to Vassar on a scholarship, so I came at seventeen, mm-hmm. eighteen.
3: Yeah,
2: um, I don't think I was eighteen yet, and I came to Poughkeepsie.
0: <laughs> Quite the change, yeah. <laughs> um, well, uh, well,
2: not really, because uh, uh, Karachi, I mean, Pakistan israel was really has really been part of the American Empire,
3: right?
2: Uh, so so in karachi in the 70s and 80s we saw a lot of like like i've grown i grew up watching star trek hmm. the original series on pakistan television yeah and Starsky and hutch and weird you know a, a kind of a weird curation of americana
3: right
2: but still it's yeah so it wasn't so it, it 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 wasn't like I came from a completely Urdu speaking world or right. something completely different.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I had a um, a professor in college. I went to Sarah Lawrence, so kind of close to <laughs> Um and she was from Pakistan and and she taught a class. It was about the social construction of family life, and I don't know. It's interesting. I feel like my my focus group is quite small, but I feel like there's something about those from Pakistan that i 've met um, at least in certain intellectual spaces that I feel very aligned to there's sort of a, a a deep kind of maybe skepticism or um, just the ability to like unpack things in a way <laughs> that I find um, uh, refreshing um. yes i there's certainly
2: a Two generations of Pakistani scholars, usually political scientists, Hmm. who will talk in this way about um, Pakistan being part of the empire, and then there being kind of a reaction and a rebellion, perhaps. Hmm. Yeah. Um, So it's, uh, but, you know, um, I think that's already old hat, though. Yeah. I'm just saying that as like, well, these are some of the ideas one had along the way um, about being part of empire, but now what? Yeah. Um, Right.
0: So, okay. So this whole concept of terrorism and terrorism specifically focused in the Middle East, was this, I mean, how much of this existed or was thought about or considered or labeled prior to nine eleven, like how much of it was constructed as a reaction to that event?
2: Well, I ha- I, I have a good I have a, uh, I have a story from growing up in Karachi, which which is from nineteen seventy nine, uh, and I'm going and on my and on and on my way to school, Karachi Grammar School. you, you went by the Hotel Metropole. And at the corner of the hotel metropole had the Pan Am office, hmm. Pan American Airlines. And in 79, by that time, this covert war in Afghanistan had begun, which is, frankly, the Soviet Union versus the CIA-funded Mujahideen. Yeah. And they're not terrorists then, they are freedom fighters. Yeah. Uh, but that war... Also extended to Karachi because a lot of those networks on both sides extended to Karachi. Now you have this is now a thing that people have to do, which is now look at a map
3: yeah.
2: and see how cl- the Karachi is the closest port to that war, God. and there are no borders. There, there's no they open; they were open, really open borders at that time. Mm. So. Um, materials, arms are all going through the port. In any case, somebody, you know, somebody blew up the Pan Am office. And that was my first bombing
3: hmm.
2: as a 11 year old going to school. I saw like this, uh, a smashed up side of the building. Right. Uh, and I remembered this right uh, just a few weeks ago when there was this fall of Kabul, as it's called. And I kind of felt like I, I realized it's the same story from nineteen
3: seventy nine, mm.
2: a story of war, a story of people calling each other names. The Taliban don't call themselves terrorists. Um, they probably they kind of, they probably think they are anti imperialists. Um, they are terrorizers, uh, but so so has been the american army and the droning right so it's just uh it's people calling each other names (laughs) right that's how it's been that's really what it is
0: right yeah and i feel like i mean so much of this but so much of everything is you know somewhat of a social construction based on labels and terminology
2: so I guess the important thing to understand then is, especially as a journalist, and I think journalism is all about asking questions: is is why is this going on? Who is trying to do what? What what is the agenda? As you as you are saying it quite quite correctly, in my opinion, what's the what's the construct? What, how what is being constructed? What's the meaning that's being constructed? Um, so. And 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 from my point of view, what is the worst thing is war, because I feel that the war really changed that city that I grew up in for decades. Um, it created arms dealers. It created this kind of wealth that came out of the war, um, which is obviously not going to. It's, it's not going to be very pleasant. People who are going to wield that power um and it created a lot of um it it created a lot of uh, anti terror laws all over the world and surveillance and and we you know we know that story um so and 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 not to you know not no and of course the the refugees uh, growing up in very soon in Karachi by the early eighties you, uh, we saw in our neighborhoods, um, my neighborhoods were Clifton and Defense. You, you saw, you saw kids who were Afghan, and they were Afghan because they didn't look like us. They were light skinned, they had uh, more A- A- Aryan features and uh, blue eye, light, light eyes. Um, so um, so we, we, we began to see the human toll there. Hmm.
0: So I'd like you to describe sort of, I mean, you can do it in more words than you did with me initially, but that this construct and this framing of terrorist, let's say, quote-unquote, organizations, you sort of likened it to... gangster shit (laughs) more localized and I think you said something about that perhaps the difference here was as opposed to gangsters fighting other gangsters that the enemy was the state or something like that
2: that's right yeah
0: so I'd love for you to kind of talk about that framing and so how does it how might it differ from what we in America have been sort of fed as it relates to, like, what are these groups of people um, and how far do their do influence, uh, how, how far does it spread? And, you know, what, how is our framing of this different than their framing? Like, how do they see themselves, right?
2: Well, right. Like, what started to happen here after 9-11 is, right, they became, they became this term, uh, terrorist, and then there was another term, Islam. Hmm. So then it, 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 and those two were connect, became, people made, tried to make connections that anybody Muslim can be a terrorist, uh, which was to me really bizarre because uh, knowing, since I've also been a journalist in Pakistan, I, I, I just had the knowledge that uh, what is happening in Afghanistan is something local. Right. um it's n- it it isn't this idea that just people in new jersey or minnesota or i don't know texas are just going to subscribe to whatever that idea is hmm. of, I, I don't know um anti-americanism it's 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 something very it's something local that is happening there and it's not even clear that they are anti-american yet they what they've done is they were hosting bin laden and uh, and i'm talking about the taliban not al qaeda and bin laden and perhaps the taliban didn't know what they were doing because in in their in their ways they were behaving very locally they were trying to get power in afghanistan in kabul
3: mm-hmm.
2: or a few cities they didn't have a sense of Starting a global war, uh, so I thought it—I thought it was—it was a very bad idea to make it into a, a global war uh, because then people might start behaving accordingly. Um, yeah. So, so I—I I would say that I would say that the Taliban were, were like were, were like the mafia, hmm. or well, even now. A lot of journalists call them warlords, which is mafia. Um, I remember Gore Vidal said that um, if you have a problem with a couple of, um, with, with the mafia in Sicily, you try and get to them. You don't bomb all of Sicily. Right. So, um, and but that's what we did. Yeah. We went and just bombed quite a lot over there. Bombed and mined and invaded.
0: Yeah, I was I was trying to think of some sort of like, correlation between the Taliban as sort of they consider themselves or how or how they maybe should rightly be considered and a group in the US, for example. Um, And I, I'm, I'm curious if you have some ideas about that, but also obviously we had this event where this sort of more localized push uh, for power um, came to another country in a way that, uh, I mean maybe it isn't, but felt unique, I guess, and obviously gave permission to the U.S. to wage this war.
2: That's right. That's right. 9-11 did happen. The attacks on the towers did happen, but I remember arguing even then in New York because I lived in Brooklyn then very much in the same neighborhood I live in now um, that uh you know it's not many more it this is not much more than twenty people yeah. it, it it the, the eleven or whatever, however many hijackers there were eleven thirteen fifteen a dozen yeah that's it uh maybe there are ten five more enablers, but that's it. They, it's a, it's a it, it'll be a huge mess uh, to, it'll be creating a huge mess if uh, you started hunting for people in immigrant communities, because that's not where they are. Uh, their minds are not where the minds of the hijackers are. Right.
3: Um,
2: and the hijackers are not among these immigrant communities. There's no, there's no correlation. If you if you spend time in these communities, say the, the places that I know well in the New York area, there's no there's no there's no talk of uh, you know war or anti-Americanism of and especially militancy uh, at, at that time. Um, in fact, I was I was worried about. Kids growing up, like if somebody's father or uncle or elder brother is taken away by, uh, at that time it was ICE, I think, not Homeland Security, is taken away. What will the kid think? I I, I was worried about that. Uh, Like something, like they could be a bad reaction. Uh, But that really hasn't happened. Yeah. Uh, However.
0: Yeah. So, and obviously, you know, I don't expect you to know necessarily, but, you know, you said you don't really know if the Taliban knew what they were doing. Do you think that at least that attack was less about waging war, you know, against America and more just a part of this? Desire to gain power locally, like was it like a show of some kind, basically?
2: Well, we we were we are right now talking talking about the Taliban in Afghanistan, and yeah. I'm make, and I'm claiming that they were uh, they were local warlords or mafia making their power moves locally, yeah. right? Where they are, it's a local something local, something geographically confined. Yeah. However, they did give. Um, safe harbor to Bin Laden who was a different story Now Bin Laden def, def certainly wanted to create a global war and I think he understood and his agenda is now by now very clear to people that he wanted the Americans out of Saudi Arabia so he had kind of a, a, a big idea That's not a local idea. Yeah. But nevertheless, it wasn't a good idea to wage war on the Taliban, to to send troops into a country and tens of thousands. Uh, And you know, I, I think it would have been much more reasonable to go after Bin Laden and his enablers, like you were going after criminals.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: um more like a police action than a than a and then a war uh on a country right uh it's it's also now very obvious that this was this was the wrong thing to do i mean i don't know how however many trillions have been spent and look at where afghanistan is um, right. and uh, what what was achieved this war really right
0: yeah it's it's amazing too because i feel like by waging war against islam or waging war against a country effectively for lack of a better term like blew this up far beyond what it could have been just logistically um but also i yeah i imagine that you know those who were more local, like we could have been on the same side as everyone, other than <laughs> Bin Laden's crew, right? We sort of made enemies um, out of a a country or an entire, you know, multiple cultures of people. Um,
2: I think that's a great point. I think yeah. I think you just said it. That's yeah. that's what I'm trying to say, really. Right. Um, but I I think I, I just get I just get into a delirium around this because all like all these years of frustration just kind of create a fog in my head like you know yeah. all the all the- all the wars all the all the refugees all the you know all of the the money spent um the the war economy and the bad actors that come out of that the corruption um that comes out of war so it's 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 uh, it's it's hard to focus because so much on on any one bad thing because there were so many bad things that came out of the war. Yeah. Um, but you're right, as as you just said, that it would have been best to focus on somebody as a criminal rather than create a war on a people or a country or or a, a land. Right. Um, because then, and one of the odd things about the, the the people who lead us to these wars is, like, say, people in the State Department is, they really don't think about consequences. Like, they don't they don't think about what could happen in reaction. Um, like, clearly, the Taliban have been able to recruit people on the idea that they're fighting a foreign invader. Now, well, that's true,
3: right? <laughs>
2: So we should have thought of that, that they have a, they have a, you've just given them a great reason to fight us by being there. Um, Yeah. So.
0: Yeah, it feels like we literally projected a relative power onto them that otherwise they may not have had if we.
2: That's right. Yeah. That's right. And and in fact, they, in fact, the, the Taliban. And again, you know, the, one shouldn't. I, I we, we are using the word Taliban, but it would be so much better to talk about like specific people and their little groups, just as you would a ma- the mafia, maybe. Mm-hmm. But uh, so that's really what I'm thinking about doing. But I'm using the word Taliban just so that it has it, a shorthand. Yeah. But. Uh, a lot of them wanted to make, uh, they wanted to have, they wanted to, when the Americans invaded, they wanted to have peace. They wanted to lay down their arms. And we didn't let that happen. We insisted on invasion uh, and putting in troops. So th- this is, you know, this, you can look this up. So that's also quite amazing that we were really insistent on dominating a place uh, and putting uh, our our troops there, I suppose. Mm
3: -hmm.
0: So do you think in sort of like housing bin Laden um, and sort of like taking him and his ideas in, uh, do you think those ideas... Again, hard question to answer, but would have spread as much as they did had we not gone to war. So you know, was that like a?
2: I totally agree with you. They wouldn't have. I, I don't think I, they they wouldn't have. I think the war created war. Um, I, I think there's a there's a book you know there's a book called the Taliban by Ahmad Rashid and it it talks about how um bin laden would talk to mullah omar long nights of discussion about how to get the americans out of the arabian peninsula and it's just a it's just a discussion among a few people it's some crazy talk it's not it's not talk that's reverberating through the Islamic world, or through the region or through South Asia, or it's just a, it's just some crazy talk going on somewhere in Afghanistan, maybe Kandahar, who knows? Mm-hmm. So I think um, yes, Bin Laden created some kind of a network. But it was a small network. It was a. it's turned out to have been a few people, and uh, you know, but creating a, a war on a land just uh, made thing uh, pro- created a kind of a proliferation of bad ideas,
3: right?
2: Which would which would not have happened if that if that kind of war had not happened, right? Um, because if if you notice, Al Qaeda's ideas are not popular.
3: Despite yeah, the wars,
2: <laughs> they're not they're not popular anywhere. You, I mean, um, you, can, you can look at um, you can look at Europe. You can look at, you can look at England. You can look in Canada. You can look here um, in Muslim immigrant communities, say or citizens who are muslim or anyone else i mean the ideas can also jump to other communities they they, they know they it they, they didn't take they didn't take root at all um,
0: do you think there initially was some degree of confusion more locally as to why america was raging, uh, waging this war against a country versus a group of people like I'm curious how, I mean, obviously we've had so many years and so much destruction and so much death, so where we begun versus where we are now, I imagine, is quite different. But locally, do you think there's still this idea that um, the Americans were fighting the wrong war or going against the wrong people? And um, has it all been replaced by... uh, you know, rightfully like anger at America. Um,
2: I, I don't even know if there's that much. I don't even know if there's anger at America. I I think people generally, if I if I'm to spec speculate, I think people generally felt that America as a power. Mm-hmm. As a superpower, America is known as a superpower. By the way, if you go to Pakistan, there's the word, there's this term that's going to be used: the superpower. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny. I don't think about it here, but it's a, it's a, it's a, and they expected a superpower to behave in an arrogant way, Mm. in like, like a giant, you know, uh, smashing through terrain. I mean, like a Marvel, you know, like in the Marvel universe or the DC comics universe. So some, 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 some way that people think about America like that—that that it can behave like that. Yeah. They have been hurt, so they're gonna—they're gonna rumble through like a like a giant through like you know some yeah. terrain and break things.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. It sounds like some sort of like cartoon mythology or something. I yeah. mean, on both sides, right? Like how we're categorizing these countries is so, I mean, oversimplified. But um, yeah, and but bizarre in a way. Uh,
2: I think I think that's a that's a really interesting point that you that here we had people organizing a war who didn't know the other side at all right They didn't know how they think how they are even how they fight um because uh, you, you know as a, i tell people here in new york that as a kid and growing up in karachi i would go um i would go camping in western pakistan which is the same landscape as afghanistan broad, you know and and um i would you know go with people when in the when when in that landscape i would meet people there who would take me further into the wilderness hmm. and and i was a 16 year old tennis player and i'm really like uh, fit and i couldn't run up the hill like they could and so when the wars began and I began to think about American troops with their with their bases and their you know you need you need AC and television and cafeteria and I and I think about who they were going to face they were going to face people who know how to crouch behind a boulder for hours with a date and a cigarette and I I just was like, you guys don't know who you're going to fight with at all. So, I'm just I just went specific there, but I I, I, I agree with your point that we also don't know where we are going, uh, which is which is an odd. It's a simple idea, but also an odd idea. It's like, huh, how come we here, say it, say the decisions are made in DC or. Well, decisions are made by politicians or from all over the country, and it, you know a lot of people are cosmopolitan or worldly. How come they don't know how, how come they just don't know about where they are go, where they're going? Uh, and I think it must be some belief in technology. They just think that it's their, um, the, the, te- yeah, the technology somehow can win all. Um, the
0: technology. What technology are
2: you? Uh, the are t- the, uh, technology of war?
0: Oh, okay, got it. Go right,
2: like yeah. um, we could, you know, uh, the troops can call in um, fight, uh, uh, fighter support or helicopter gunships or um, or they have they have better guns or laser guided munitions and mm-hmm. and then drones so we must believe that our technology can just do certain things and we don't think about the culture that we are encountering right. it must be a comp- must be a straightforward belief in technology
0: yeah i have a a friend who's a navy seal who um went to afghanistan several times throughout all of this and when um, the us just pulled out of it, afghanistan he posted pretty candidly about his own experience um, of fighting that war and pretty much explicitly said that even he and his uh, fellow Navy SEALs were consistently confused about what they were doing. Um, They didn't know what the mission was. You know, before, you know, bin Laden like they knew where bin Laden was prior, like then he was killed, then they're still there, that it became more of a performance um, than anything else. And that, you know, maybe we have some belief that those intimately involved know what's going on and the extent of the incompetence I think is far beyond Anything
2: we can comprehend, almost. Yes, yeah, so I I totally agree. I wish more people, th- I, I wish more people thought that, just thought that that you know what there is incompetence. There is no we shouldn't give them the war planners or the State Department the benefit of the doubt, yeah. Because years have passed and they've given us no, uh, they've given us no sanity around this mission, in Afghanistan. What are the, what, what are the objectives? What's reasonable and why, frankly? So they must be incompetent or they must be, or there must be something else that they want to achieve that they don't tell us. Um, Maybe the whole point is just to be in Afghanistan so that the Chinese and the Iranians can't trade. Maybe it's some kind of global, it was some kind of a, a strategy that we wouldn't even imagine. Yeah. Um, Because, because kind of, because, because as you just said, bin Laden was killed.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Right.
2: He was found and killed.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think they, the U S like just took responsibility for bombing something somewhere, some car, some white car where they thought like explosives were being loaded into it and it was um containers of water and that's right. Like I mean I I just don't understand how after all this time and like you said, after the whatever we consider to be this exceptional technology is clearly um I don't know, it it's it's a mirage, I think.
2: Um. Um, I wish that I really wish that you know in the in the last couple of years we've had some like like visceral reactions to uh, something oppressive yeah. in you know so here meaning like the Me Too movement or BLM Black Lives Matter. I wish there could be that kind of a visceral a- anger about th- this war, like. As in, who did it? Who's, who conducted it? Who planned it? Why? Um, Where is the money? And they would they would be seen as um, um, you know they would be seen as 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 uh, horrible people as I don't know Harvey Weinstein or mm-hmm. somebody like that, right? Um, or 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 uh, or um, the police departments that were seen as really awful. During BLM, that it should, they should be seen as, at least as badly as the police.
3: <laughs> yeah.
2: Um, because this is, this created, this has created so much death and destruction and, and then, you know, if you, if, you know, one has, one can't help but notice that so many of the veterans who come back are, um, you know are in tr- in such g- great trouble i mean look look at them uh, and i'm we troubled like they're so troubled look at how many were in the siege in dc right um so you know i'm i'm working with these filmmakers on who, on a on a film about the right wing in india hmm. but the, these filmmakers have made it's a the it's a frontline pbs project but these filmmakers have also made films uh, about the right wing here, they made a film called "American Nazis," and they were talking about how much white supremacist militia uh, activity increases at the end of a foreign war in U.S. history, and um, it, I think it's uh, I think it is it has just happened again. Um you just have to count the number of veterans who went to DC for that siege party. Right. Um, so there are these consequences that uh infuriate me but I just wish that there was there would be there would be uh there would be a kind of, there would be the kind of anger on the, let's just call it the streets that happened with BLM or with with the Me Too movement. It, you just you get, even for a, even for a certain amount of time, people should be like, "This can't go on. This has to be torn down." Yeah. The, whatever the system is that enabled this to happen, the the war.
3: Yeah.
2: Um, so that's uh, that's how I think about it.
0: And how do you sort of switching gears to a more personal question, like? I mean, how, how do you cope with this? You must feel, I mean, you've been in this country for quite some time. Um, and I know before we, you've said a couple of times that there, there's just this sort of immense fog and I think like relative disbelief. Um, and I'm curious what your journey with all of that has been like, did you get angry at a certain point And like, what, how have you survived through all of this knowing the situation as intimately as you do
2: well there was a there was a point in, in which there was a time when i got into trouble with homeland security because like crossing the border at buffalo and they harassed they de- de- they detained me overnight and they wanted to take away my legal status and i had to fight a court case and the asian american legal defense and education fund took up my case because they they said they said they'll take they'll take up my case pro bono because they said that um there's an undisclosed memorandum floating around dhs that that they would like to fight and that memorandum was mm. that they, uh there was some kind of an instruction given out that homeland that customs border patrol should harass or pressure Muslim men from muslim majority countries even if they are legal should harass them to try and give up their legal status say their green card so when that happened, I thought about this i thought i i i I thought about I thought about what makes me happy to be American and what makes me upset. I ma- and I made a list. I like there, was, there were two columns.
0: <laughs> what was the happy part?
2: <laughs> well, the happy part was um, coming to Vassar and. You know, getting an education, a, a great education in an art school, a liberal art school, mm. um, being in New York, living in New York all this time, all my, my friends, my relationships. I've become a journalist here. All these opportunities. Um, Brooklyn, I mean, just it goes yeah. on like that. Um, and even like, you know, whatever, and so many rites of passage, like. I got married in New York and so many things. Uh, But on the other hand would be some of these things that you and I are talking about, like this, this rumbling giant that creates war. Mm -hmm. And it's, and it it creates war in places that I have, uh, that I'm from and have been. And it creates so much chaos and confusion and pain and weirdness. Uh, so it is very unsettling, um, and and he- and makes makes one ultimately helpless. Um, so I wrote a play about I I I, I did a play about this feeling. Uh, it's it's called Unburdened because I, eventually I gave up on doing journalism and I and I felt like you know I I have to do a play about feeling split like that. Mm. So I did a I eventually did a play and. And again, it was, you know, it, it was Buffalo, New York. Buffalo is where I got into trouble with Homeland Security and bu- in Buffalo, New York an art gallery, SIPA art gallery commissioned display. So So uh, sometimes then I would get stopped at the border because my parents are in Canada, I go visit them, mm. and sisters So when I'd get stopped at the border and they would ask me, why did we stop you that time? And what do you do anyway? And I And I'd be I do. I'm a playwright, <laughs> and here's the play, and it's about this. Yeah. And it's about this this situation yeah. that you've just reminded me of. Right. And by the way, the uh, the customs border patrol people at that time when I got into trouble uh, were all veterans. I found because I spent so much time that night. Right in at the peace bridge peace bridge in buffalo that i found i found out that these guys are all they've just come back from the wars so they must they have to be upset right
3: totally uh,
2: and they're also confused i'm sure emotionally like what happened who are we supposed to defend is it rihan that is should be should be uh, you know kept under suspicion Is there a danger? Where is the danger? Who's at fault? It's 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 the kind of stuff that you and I are talking about. Like who's at fault? Who made this up? Yeah. Um,
3: Do
0: you? How do your? What do your parents think about all of this? Do they feel similarly to you? Do you talk about this with them?
2: Yes. In fact, that night when I got detained at the border, I they took away my phone but then they, at 3 a.m. or something they gave my, me my phone back and i called up my parents and my mother said just give up on the us just come home meaning can meaning home the parents right. home yeah she didn't say give up she just said just come home stop it like yeah. stop and my father said you have to keep going hmm. so Again, it was a it it was a it was a, it was split,
3: yeah.
2: Like one one part was also my feeling, which is my mother's feeling. Like I just want an exit from all this. I don't want to think about this. Can I go somewhere else? And then another part is my father's part, which is no. You f- you fight it. You 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 fight for your rights and you fight for what you think. Um, is the right thing to do which is get back to New York and fight this case and you know and see them in court right so
0: yeah it's it's interesting I I know a lot of Americans um, who you know feel so disillusioned by the US um, especially in my generation and and you know, so many people considering, especially now, I think, especially after Trump's election, but continues, because I think we all sort of know that that's not necessarily over. Um, You know, like, a lot of us struggling with do we stay in the US? Um, And that and our perception of it as being, you know, so bad and so ridiculous and so offensive. And, um so it's it's always interesting it's it's interesting to hear your perspective right as someone who's not from here to begin with and you know has this desire to kind of fight to stay and i i you know i've definitely heard a narrative around like you know like what is our perspective as americans who grew up in america and not necessarily totally understanding <laughs> other people's experiences or, or perspectives. Um, like it's sort of, I mean, I don't know, I, f- I feel pretty torn about it myself. Um, but for whatever reason, I feel the desire to, to stay in America and, and to sort of prove or create some sort of section of, of life or the world um, or that country where, you know, maybe we don't have to be as affected as this as we think we are. Um, we can choose to live differently, or in community, or something like that.
2: I think it's an open question for sure. I, I, I yeah. think that I think to feel troubled is is make to feel that other people are troubled deeply. Definitely makes me feel like I have company because I feel yeah. troubled. Yeah. But talking to you, I wish I wish like uh, I, I wish you had a job at the at the State Department. <laughs> no, I'm I'm really serious. Because, because when the wars were going on, I would read, uh, I would read uh, essays by, or the newspaper art, or, or or op-ed pieces by people who run policy. And they wouldn't talk like you, like you are talking. Mm -hmm. Um, which is, uh, you know, thinking about, like, thinking about humanity, humanity first, or humaneness first, or, uh, just what will keep things um, healthy, socially speaking. I think that's the feeling I get um, from your point of view. Mm-hmm. In, instead, there would be talk of um, war and enemy and terror and mission. And I would be I, I just would I, I would think about the I would think about this. I would be like, who are these people? Where are they? I don't meet them in New York. And even if I go to DC and there's some like there's some party, you do meet people who work at, at the FBI and the CIA and who've served in Islamabad and they seem very reasonable people. So who is who who is it that makes this up?
3: Right.
2: Um uh, so, yeah. Why do they have this incredible power? Um, because you know, even even presidents get uh, they they lose an election. George Bush lost an election. Obama lost an election. Trump has lost an election. Uh, George Bush the younger.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Well, so did the father, but. This war has just gone on for 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um who's who's made this happen? Yeah. It's it's, it's like why aren't they uh, why isn't there a movement to to uh, you know to get at them. Like uh, like the bullies they are or whatever, you know.
0: Right. How did you feel when we pulled out of Afghanistan recently? <laughs>
2: I did feel something i felt something that I, I felt uh i felt a relief uh and I was like huh why is there a relief and like and uh, and i i told some friends um, that about this I spoke to my cousin who i grew up in Karachi he grew up in lahore and he said he also felt a relief. And then we decided that it must be because you know a war takes two sides. so even if there are two awful people fighting each other, if one leaves, maybe there's hope that there's going to be no more fighting. Yeah. because what you're tired of is war. and it, it, and like I said to you at the beginning of the of this uh, our conversation. That I remembered that bombing that I saw as a eleven year old in Karachi by the hotel metropole, the mm-hmm. the blowing up of the Pan Am office, which had a lovely cutout that I used to look at, like some, you know, airline steward. Um, and it was just blown up and I, I, I realized that's when it began and it kinda of feels like maybe. Maybe it's ended. I mean, realistically speaking, the Taliban are like like are, are militias and mafia, and they'll be awful to people and they will they will oppress other people. But maybe, perhaps, perhaps um, a, a grand war has ended, uh, and it's always a better idea not to have a, a you know a bigger war. Mm-hmm. Uh maybe, perhaps, maybe, maybe people may think that there is no great, uh, you know, the, the anti-imperialist angle of the war will go away, and perhaps they'll have to think about managing a state. I don't know, but I did feel a relief that one side has left. Yeah. I don't know what the future will be. I don't even... I have no idea who these people are. It would be very good to know who exactly they are. I mean, again, talking about a point, going back to a point that, that has come up in this conversation, like to find out what the local truth actually is.
3: Right.
2: Who are they? What do they really want? Who are these young men? Um, but at, at least one... Party to the war has left. Yeah. Perhaps, perhaps it's just a, perhaps it's just a, you know, just clutching at some imaginary straws. But
3: yeah,
2: I was like, okay, one, you know, one side exited, great.
0: Right, and it's. I mean, I think we can all, you know, I, I use an analogy a lot about like intestinal parasites. That if you have a really bad you know, intestinal infection, you know, once you get rid of the parasites that you don't just go back to normal, that your body has to, like, heal from the invasion. (laughs) Your digestive tract has to heal. So, and obviously the longer, you know, they're there, the longer the healing process is. So I definitely don't feel, like, naive around the fact that we withdraw and then everything's fine, but I do wonder if it just seems like especially after talking to you about it, like what a colossal distraction from the real problem. And that maybe without that distraction, things could become clear again, um, especially locally, you know, uh,
2: so. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and for the, you know, another thing that came up in the conversation kind of has been backs. Backstage in the conversation is this like the the Muslim question, like the, mm. like terrorism was also, uh, terrorism was understood as Islamic terrorism. And, and we've decided between us that war just created more war. So maybe if one big war ends, we can, we, it gives, Muslims a chance to not feel besieged by, you know, by the actions of a superpower. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: Maybe they can think of something else. Maybe they can be some other, you know. Maybe they can think of other other realities, or um, or not not just feel oppressed by that idea. So, even in that even in that scheme of the world of Islam, which has been seen as a, a world that harbors terrorism, perhaps they can be, perhaps this, because this ends, something else has space. Yeah, for sure.
0: Yeah, I feel, I mean, and the whole, you know, religious debate around all of this, I I find, I'm so sick of it at this point. Um <laughs> You know, like, I feel like that was just, you know, is, um, are these beliefs inherently violent and, and, um, did that have something to do with all of this? And I don't know. I almost feel like it's a distraction from the real issue. And I guess I feel not that I'm super educated about this, but like you said, in these sort of immigrant communities, like these ideas are not popular. (laughs) This is not even remotely common,
2: um, they're not there at all. Like yeah. there no, there no, There's nobody of college age or non-college. Like in, nobody in their twenties who, like, who has, who's been heard of being, you know, going to any of these places to sign up for war, or it's it's a it's a very unusual case. It's very few people. Um, or or it's somebody with severe mental problems, right? So it it's not in the it, you don't you don't see it in the school systems you don't see it you don't you don't see it anywhere,
3: yeah.
2: Um, so I, so my claim is it was not there to begin with, right?
0: Yeah, and I think America has a problem. I lived um, in Europe when I was younger and and traveled. Quite a bit, and my mother you know specifically said that one of the reasons she wanted to do that was to show my brother and I that there was there were worlds beyond our own um, and I think when you 're in Europe or even the Middle East, where the countries are much closer that there's and also I mean as a result of education, but there 's more opportunities to understand <laughs> that um and i think i wonder if part of the reason this could be perpetuated for so long in the way that it was is just because i think americans are are so ignorant to to other cultures and um see something that they don't understand and make a ton of assumptions about it uh
2: i mean it's a it's a mist frankly it's a mystery to me because american cities are diverse yeah they have i mean this is not you know, we are not in China. We are not in Russia. The, uh, the U.S. has immigrants everywhere. Um, in the pandemic a year, I traveled a, a lot back and forth uh, in the country. spent a lot of time in the South, in the Midwest. And city after city is diverse. It's, it's full of people from all over.
3: Mm
2: -hmm. Um, so you would think people would, would know who is their neighbor, and it seems like that's true, but at the same time, there is this ignorance. I've never understood that. Um, and, you know, I'm not even talking about, frankly, I shouldn't even talk about the rest of the country. Even New York behaves, uh... In very ignorant ways uh, I mean I was here right after nine eleven and I was amazed by how many cosmopolitan New Yorkers were worried about bearded men plotting things in the basement right. I'd, I'd be like, really yeah so <laughs> um, so it's I've, i haven't under, i haven't understood that about this culture, that it's very diverse uh, internally as well as in racially, but also because of immigration. Um, and there are so many regions in the, in the country yeah. that do deal with each other, but they can be this kind of ignorance or about the world and then that ignorance can be taken advantage of by political leaders.
3: Right.
2: They clearly are able to. Uh, they clearly succeed at saying that's an, that's an enemy. That is a group that's plotting a world war, and people people buy it. Right. Did buy it. And right. uh, it's just. Uh, it, I haven't understood it. Yeah.
0: Yeah, well, and I I mean, I wonder if, if part of it, because you're right, America is diverse, but I think either maybe somewhat segregated, as far as you know, we like to call it this melting pot of cultures, but I, I see it more as an erasure of culture, you know, that sort of, you know, having people visit America versus you visiting another country and being a visitor there, um, I feel like must be a different experience. Like I sort of I always sort of talk about how I wonder, you know, especially the CEOs that like sign off on clear cutting, you know, hundreds of thousands of acres of forest or something, that if they were forced to sit in nature <laughs> um for a chunk of time, if it if they would be capable of doing something like that. Um and I wonder if it's the same for this, if we if we were forced to spend more time with these people we go to war with. <laughs> Would we be capable of doing that as frequently as we do?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I, I think I think generally the kind the kind of uh, I call it innovative or radical ideas that are coming from I, I'd say younger people should be also should also be applied to foreign policy. Um, I, I shouldn't call it radical. It just it's just. Just fresh ideas that just come from the young. Yeah. Um, that sounds like an old, fogey way of putting it, but it's, it's certainly not coming from people who are all, who are already around.
0: Right.
2: Yeah. I agree. Um, so. Yeah. Well. But 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 yeah. foreign policy should not be relegated to some people out there in D.C. Or, that's for sure. Yeah. People should take a hold of it, just like they have with everything else.
0: Yeah. Well, I would love to keep talking to you more, but our power went out, and I am on the phone hotspot, which I can't imagine has much data on it, so I want to be sure we wrap up before we get uh, cut off again. Okay. Um, can people find you anywhere? Like, are you on Twitter, or have a website, or anything like that?
2: Yeah, you can just, you can just Google me, Rehan Ansari, and okay. you'll, you'll find what I'm up to.
0: Perfect. Um, And then I also ask everyone, I know you recommended a couple while we were talking, but I always ask my guests um, if they could recommend one book uh, that really was instrumental or influential to them in their lives. It can be about this or anything. Um, We have a a book club that I do with my patrons and we always pick books that the guests have (laughs) suggested. So it's nice to have that come full circle.
2: You know, since you were talking about the war since you were talking about the war and and terrorism and so i the book that made a lot of sense to me 20 years ago i mean it didn't come out 20 years ago but the novel it's a novel called the war at the end of the world Hmm. by vargas yosa and if you want to see a bin laden character that's the novel perfect
0: thank you so much rehan thank you hello again thank you so much for listening to that episode with rehan i hope you enjoyed it as much as i did i always feel awkward saying like i hope you enjoyed it because i have so many conversations on this podcast that are about like really difficult topics um, and i know maybe like enjoy is not the word you would use but i hope you found it valuable and useful um and thought-provoking i'll say that uh Again, if you would like to join us uh in the Patreon community and meet lots and lots of like-minded people, read books with us and chat with us in the Discord server and host a workshop or attend a workshop, get access to all sorts of playlists and bonus content for the show, patreon.com slash Anya Kotz is where you can do that. I'm going to play you out with a song that requires zero introduction, so here goes. Thank you all for being here with me again, and I will catch you next week.
4: to me ah!